I'm going to be reading from Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, this morning. And uh, this is a story where Jesus comes to his disciples and he asks them, who do people say that I am? And they respond about that. And then he asks them more directly, so who do you say that I am? Scholars um, who study these sorts of things claim that this is the high water mark in the Gospels where Jesus and the gospel writers, they're they're presenting the story of Jesus, but where they're coming to the height of the ark is they're trying to ask the question to each one sitting, not just who do people say Jesus is, but who do you say that Jesus is? So we come right into the thick of it here in Mark chapter 8 and 29. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anybody about him, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus, right? And when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just pause for just a minute. Let that soak. Lord God, as we come to you this morning, help us hear from you. Amen. Before we sort of attempt to peel back what I think are some of the hidden aspects of this text this morning. Let's snag another little bit of background of this story from the Gospel of Matthew because Gospel of Matthew gives us just another little point that I think is relevant. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus said to, to uh, Peter, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, like we read in Mark. But then watch what Jesus adds here. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. Jesus uh, was saying, Peter, you may not realize this, but you just heard God's voice. You, uh, he, Jesus claims that something was revealed to Peter. Hearing God's voice is the unpacked way of saying revelation. Um, I want to talk a few minutes this morning about this idea of revelation. It's a gnarly idea uh, that there's an eternal dimension that somehow communicates to us in the temporal dimension, um, that the infinite reaches out into the finite. It certainly is a matter of faith. Nobody can prove that it happens. And yet the scripture claims over and over again that revelation happens from God to humanity. In fact, in Hebrews 12, um, the claim is that God isn't just a God who spoke, but that he's a God who continues to speak. And the text says, see to it that you do not refuse him, watch, in in the present tense, who speaks. God's always speaking. When we hear, that's what the Bible calls revelation. 
Jesus said to Peter, something was revealed to you, Peter. You didn't just come up with this on your own. That's our story, that lesson this morning. During the Lenten season, we as the church listen intently for God's voice. Uh, we try to tune some things out, some things in, and in the hope of catching the voice of God, in the hope of catching revelation. I, I hope you're lenting well. If you haven't started, there's still time to get in on the fun, right? Uh, what we do doesn't make God speak, but it helps us to tune in to catch what he's speaking. Uh, I'm old enough to remember radios that weren't digital. Um, you know, I, I, they had dials on them. You had to sort of twist the dial to sort of tune in and find a radio station. I lived in, I grew up in rural Wisconsin, and the only real culture we had was agriculture. And um, and when you drove out on the highways, I mean, you find maybe three or four stations on the whole dial. And so you'd have to kind of tune it in, and then you get it to fade in and out, and you have to retune it in. I mean, we knew that that the radio station, when we tuned something in, we didn't make the radio station broadcast. We knew it was always broadcasting, but we knew we had to catch it, right? That, that's kind of the idea in Lent. We try to, to dial something within ourselves until we catch, that, that we want to be open to, the, to listening to God more intently, not to make him speak, but to catch the one who speaks, right? In the Judeo-Christian imagination, God speaks uh, in a number of ways. He speaks through creation. We know that. That, that the, actually creation traditionally is called the first book of God. That somehow creation itself speaks of God's uh, entity and speaks of his traits, his eternality, and, and of his order and that kind of thing. Uh, God also speaks through the proclamation of scripture or, or texts that we deem sacred. We call it the Bible. God also speaks through certain kinds of events that we live in our lives. That sort of smack of the eternal. And I think if you look back in your life, you'll see moments like the seemingly happenstance uh, kinds of moments or meetings or conversations can sometimes communicate wagon loads of faith and hope into your life. They're almost, you almost feel like you're, you're uh, in the Goldilocks and Three Bears story, right? Where the Three Bears show up and they're suspicious as they're looking around that somebody's been messing with their stuff. Somebody was messing with their porridge, someone's messing with my chair, someone's messing with my bed, and they finally run into Goldilocks. A lot of times that's how our lives are. We walk into our lives and realize, wait, whoa, this is something more. Somebody's messing with this chance encounter. And, and, and if, you, if, you, if you dig a little deeper, oftentimes you'll discover that it was God, right? God also speaks within people. This surprises some people, but it, it, I mean, even before they cross the threshold of faith, uh, the tradition of Christianity has always said, God is speaking, and sometimes people hear him, but they don't know it. Um, Augustine famously wrote, Late have I loved you, O beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. For behold, you were speaking within me, but I was outside looking for you. I sought you in the things outside of me that you had made, and the whole time you were with me, and I was not with you. Augustine is claiming that God speaks into the lives of people, even who are without faith, because he was one who was without faith. They just don't know that it's him. Such a provocative thought. Um, this may surprise you as well. God, God speaks to people through 
other faith traditions that we would consider false narratives. For instance, the Magi, who are stargazers and star worshipers. And if they were Jewish citizens, they would have been stoned to death. And yet in the midst of their pagan worship, uh, an unrighteous worship, God speaks to them. And the first ones to bow and worship Jesus were pagans. (laughs) Somehow God was able to wiggle through them in a narrative that wasn't true. Or we see Paul claiming the same thing when he shows up in Athens and here is this pagan uh, temple and they have this altar that's inscribed to an unknown God and Paul goes, look, you see that, that inscription? See what's happening there? The reason you had that impulse is because God somehow was reaching out to you and you didn't quite know what to do with it, but this, this is the result of God reaching into your life. God speaks. In the Christian tradition, though, God speaks uh, in all these different ways. He speaks most perfectly and most clearly through Jesus himself. There's a text in Hebrews that claims that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. That if you see Jesus, you see God. This is why the the four gospels are so precious to the church. Because we get to take peaks at Jesus, who we know we're seeing, seeing peaks of God and how God would act because this is God in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. But here's the point I want to make out of all this. Though God speaks to us in all these kinds of different ways, we're not always faithful to what he speaks to us. He speaks to us indeed, but somehow we sometimes refract it. I mean, in our story, Peter hears from God. It's beautiful. But then he makes a move that's unfaithful to what has been revealed to him. Uh, Try as we may, our response to God's voice, to his revelation in our lives, is skewed by our maturity or our character or our experience of abuse or... um, our disappointments, our failures. I mean, all of this sort of colors the lens of our soul and how we're able to reflect God's revelation that comes within us to that which was without our lives or around our lives or the people close to us. Consequently, we distort what God reveals to us. That's what our story tells us. I was talking with Dr. Green a couple of weeks ago about this text. And he said, you know, if I were talking to my students in the classroom, I'd I'd go to the board and draw a big circle symbolizing human life. And then I'd take an arrow and draw a straight arrow right into the center of that because God speaks, symbolizing God's revelation and God's voice into the human heart. It's clear and it's pure. But then I'd write, I'd draw a line out from within that place, the human heart, out to the world, and I would do it skewed and squiggly. Because every time God speaks to us, what happens is usually when we try to reflect it, we add our humanness to it and it distorts what God has said. What distorts it, I mean, our reflection of revelation to ourselves and others around us is often zigzag distortions of what God intended it to be. And what distorts the revelation in Peter's case in our text is his own human expectations of what he heard. He heard something. The revelation was, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And when he hears that, he goes, I mean, for Peter, along with the other apostles, and really all Jews in the first century, for that matter, they had expectations about what the Messiah was to do. 
So when God shows him he's the Messiah, he starts adding all of those expectations of what he thinks Messiah is to do. You know, they believe that Messiah came, that when he came, that he was going to destroy Rome. And so he thought, that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to destroy Rome. They, they believe the Messiah was going to take over politically and give the land of God's people back into the control of the people of God. That was his expectation, immediately added. So when Peter hears the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, all his hopes and dreams and expectations just lit up, Right? I mean, think of, of how he would have responded, thinking, man, we're not going to have to be overtaxed by these people anymore. No more overtaxation. That's a beautiful thing, right? Or no longer having to be repressed by alien soldiers walking around Israel who could sort of demand things from you that you had to legally obey, like carry their stuff a mile, right? Um, or think of the hope that he had of being important because he was in the in, he was in the inside man he would have been on the inner circle of the next ruler of Israel and if you remember reading the gospels one of the favorite topics of the apostles was how their lives were going to be different after Jesus conquered Rome and they'd be walking along and they said well you know actually I'm going to be better than you but I'm going to be greater than you I mean up until one of the gospels record up until the last supper they're, when they're sitting around before the, the, Jesus sort of gathers them, they're arguing about which one of them was going to be greatest in the kingdom that was coming. That was their thinking. <laughs> so uh, Peter hears from God. Jesus is it. This is really going to happen. The world is going to change, and Peter's thinking, I'm smack in the middle of it. I'm one of the insiders. It was revelation. God had spoken. Peter had heard. But what God meant by Messiah and what Peter assumed God meant by Messiah was different. And so when he reflects it out, the revelation gets reflected out. It's all zigzagged. And so when Jesus starts to teach about his death, right after this revelation happens, at the hands of the Romans, I mean, the very ones Peter assumed were going to get conquered by Jesus, Jesus is claiming he's going to be killed by them. Peter freaks out. And so we pick up the text again in verse 31. Then he, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering. I mean, Peter's going, pause. What do you mean? Messiah's caused great suffering. They don't get great suffering. And must be rejected, what? By the elders and chief priests and scribes and must be killed. And after three days rise again. And he has said this all quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, what he's saying is he said, I need to help Jesus get the revelation. I mean, I, I've received this, you're Messiah. Messiahs don't die. They make other people die. Peter had expectations. See, in the context of Revelation, Peter got it right and Peter got it wrong. I'd like to suggest to you that all of us do that. When God shows us something, when a promise hits us and we think, oh, God is going to somehow touch something, we have, we, it's God. And yet we tend to mess it up. And watch Jesus' response in verse 33. And Jesus turned, looks at his disciples, Peter, he rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan. He said, why? You do not have in mind the concerns of God. See, when God reveals something to you, it's because God's trying to get something done in the world. But what we do is we're not faithful to his concern. We add human concern. 
He says, you have just merely human concerns. See, somehow human concerns refract the concerns of God that come to us in a way that makes us unfaithful to the revelation. Jesus is saying, yes, Peter, you heard from God, but you twisted it up, man. And he says, get behind me, Satan. This is so interesting. Because the Satan, whomever, whatever it is or he is, is represented in Scripture as the one who distorts the word of God. The one who distorts the revelation of God. Some traditions, like the one I'm from, see Satan as a person. The fallen angel Lucifer. Others see the Satan as a general spirit or force in the world that seeks to dominate or dismiss or control other people or creation. Or others see that, the, that it's just maybe power structures that are, you, that are in the world that actively enslave or create war, that kind of thing. These, these destructive cultural impulses that fill the world. Maybe Satan is all of the above. But the point is, whatever it is, when Satan, the Satan appears, I call it the Satan because the, it's really, a, the term Satan, the Satan is, a, is really like an office more than it's a personage. It's, a, it's like the president, right? It's the Satan is the accuser. And whatever the Satan is, whenever it appears in sacred text, what God has spoken is put to question. Always. So in the Genesis narrative of the fall, when the Satan appears, immediately calls into question with those first humans of record, says, are you sure God has said this? Or in the wilderness and the temptation of Jesus, we see how the Satan is quoting text to Jesus with a twist, twisting the intention, perverting the essence of the text. Jesus claims in his teaching that whenever the word is sown, remember he taught the sower sows the word, uh, but whenever the word is sown, it's, Jesus said immediately the Satan comes. Whenever the word is put, the Satan comes immediately to steal or distort or quash it. Why would this be the case? Why would the Satan be against revelation? Because the tradition says that, that the way God is present in our world is through speaking. I mean, whatever modality is, creation or whatever we've talked about, uh, scripture. Uh, and there's a beautiful image uh, of this in Isaiah that would have been strongly present in the mind of those early Jews and certainly the first Christians. It's out of Isaiah 55, listen to it, uh, about the word and about what God's intention is with the word or his speaking. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. But watch, for as the rain comes down and the snow comes down from heaven and it doesn't return there without messing with the earth, without watering it and making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What, what this is saying is that, that God's choice to move in our world is through his speaking. And that when he speaks, it changes things and it doesn't come back to him empty, right? It's supposed to come back to him faithfully, but that's where the Satan steps in. That instead of it coming back to him faithfully, it refracts out of us in an unfaithful way. He says, if it is faithful, you'll be let out with joy or shall go out with joy. That means with the with hope of, 
of good that's going to happen. And be led back in peace, which means peace is not just a feeling, it's this notion of everything is just appropriate. When God's word is active in your life through creation, events, uh, the scripture, you know, facing Jesus, however God's word is active in your life, it'll always cause things to become appropriate in your life. And you have this expectant joy or hope of good that's going to come. And the mountains and the hills will uh, before, they'll burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands, which means creation itself will begin to not oppress you, but open up to you. So the word spoken by God, however it manifests, is what initiates the gesture of creation. Um, in the very beginning, we read in the text that everything starts by God speaking. And he accomplishes this uh, in, in this beautiful way of his voice. So in our context, Satan's intent is to stop that creative arc within the human experience. And he accomplishes it by urging Peter to add human expectations to the revelation of God. So the finite skews the infinite. That's what Peter does in our story. Jesus says this is wrong. Jesus says this is Satan. So let's wrap up this this morning by making three quick suggestions about how you can be more faithful to God's revelation in your life and just simply be less satanic. (laughs) Okay? Number one, when you get some sense of understanding of God, check your expectations. Don't be too confident about what you expect from what you hear or understand. Be a little suspicious about yourself. There's scads of promises, for example, that say, do not fear. God will protect us. I mean, how, how cool a verse is that, right? Those ideas. There's a text in Psalm 32 that says explicitly, God, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble, right? And surround me with songs of deliverance. So we hear a text like this that hits us, God is going to protect me from trouble. And most of us add to that revelation an expectation that the promise means we'll never have trouble. Right? That if one has enough faith, trouble will be averted. But, but what if this text just means that when trouble comes, it will not have the effect on you that it does on people who don't have faith? I mean, that you will be protected in that sense. So many people have promises like this revealed to them and they think, you know, because God is protecting me, I'll, I'll never hear from the doctor that I have cancer. I'll never hear from my boss that I've been laid off. I'll never hear from my spouse that, that, that he or she has had an affair and wants out of the marriage. It'll never happen because God's going to protect me from all evil. The truth is, whether saint or sinner, this is a soul-challenging world filled with trouble. And sometimes it hits you. But you can be protected in it. I grew up in central Wisconsin, as I said, and some of my friends were milking cow farmers. And if you spent the day on the farm with them, you were certain to end up with cow poo on your shoes. I mean, it's just just a certainty. It just came with the territory. Um, you weren't evil if it happened. You weren't abandoned by God if it happened. Poo just happens on farms. And it happens in life too. 
I mean, the promise is he will be with you in poo. (laughs) He will protect us from poo. It won't be able to destroy us even when we're up to our necks in it. That's the promise. In another place, the psalmist pens, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. But we think, well, wait a minute. If God was really with me, doesn't that mean I wouldn't be in the valley of the shadow of death? See, the human expectation on Revelation causes Jesus to say to us, get behind me, Satan. Because we pervert the truth. There's a, a place in the wilderness when Israel had left Egypt and Pharaoh and they're uh, out of their control and Israel's in the desert. They have no water. They're desperately thirsty. They're going to die. They're going to die of thirst. And we pick up the narrative in Exodus 17. And the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, did you, why didn't you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt to die? Why do this to us? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I going to do with these people? Right? They're almost ready to kill me over here. You know, what do you help? Help, right? And so the Lord answers Moses, walk ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff which, uh, with which you struck the Nile and go and I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and the water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders in Israel and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, watch, here's the test that they gave to God. Is the Lord among us or not? What made them ask that question? I'm not sure the Lord's among us. Why would they say that? Because they were dying of thirst. And they thought, if we're dying of thirst, it must mean the Lord isn't with us. If we're having trouble, it must mean God's not here. If I'm struggling in this marriage, maybe the Lord didn't want me to marry this person. If I'm having a hard job pressing and having a hard job time on my job, maybe God doesn't want me to have this job. It's this notion that if God is really with us, that all of, everything is going to be wonderful. That there'll be little cartoon birds flopping around and singing, and, right? And, and the sun is always shining. And, and the reality is, is that this was a test against God because he's saying to them, I'm with you. Always, whether things are wonderful or things are in the land of the suck. And here's the reality. Most of you listening to me will have a Job season in your life eventually. I mean, if you're young as it has never happened, just wait. Getting old sucks. (laughs) But God's still with you, right? (laughs) You can't live in a fallen world and not have loss. One of our dearest friends in the world now in his mid-60s has had great success all of his life. Amazing guy. And uh, he and his wife have been tithers and givers, devoted church attenders and volunteers. And uh, the market crash of 08 when the uh, land and stuff lost value. He had just built a million-dollar-plus house 
to, you know, just to put on the market. And it wouldn't sell, and it wouldn't sell, and it wouldn't sell, and it wouldn't sell, and just basically drain their lives. And uh, now they're, uh, they're still struggling, these many years later, on Social Security. But when you talk to them, they stay in hope. They still laugh. They still give. Will it get better for them financially? I mean, I hope so. They certainly hope so. <laughs> right? they, they're actively trusting God. Do what they find to do. We pray for them. But, but uh, no one knows how long it will take or if it will actually be much different. I mean, lots of wonderful, beautiful, faithful people who love God with all their hearts are poor. I, 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 I don't know much other than I do know God is protecting them in this. If your expectation in faith is that it'll always obviate loss, you are a train wreck ready to happen. You're reflecting a perversion of the truth into your life. You're under the influence of the Satan. And you're like a shattered mirror who's unfaithful to reflect a real image. You're unable to reflect the true image of revelation because of human expectation. Again, my point is be suspicious of yourself and what you expect when you actually hear God's voice. Number two, approach revelation community. In order to really understand revelation, we need to approach it together. You can't just trust yourself. So we have texts like Ephesians 4. I pray that you will have the power to comprehend, to comprehend, to understand, to get it with all the saints. Not just by yourself in a corner with your Bible in your hand. But with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? That's the only way we get more understanding is when we approach it together. Sometimes truth requires an us approach, not a me approach. That's, that's with living saints who are around you. That's why it's good to read other people. That's why it's good to read the saints that have gone before. Sometimes I consult my friends that are living and sometimes I consult my friends who are dead like Augustine and Irenaeus and etc. St. John of the Cross. And you, you consult these people and you listen to what they say about hope and faith and provision and all of a sudden it broadens you and you get more of an us-ness understanding than a me-ness understanding and you remain more faithful to revelation. Less skewed. An example I, I, that's recently an unveiling of something in me. I've been a follower of Jesus for 45 years. I came to Christ when I was a kid. And uh, I, I encountered, you know, that call of Jesus early, explicit command to love your enemies. And I honestly, over the years, I've tried to fight for that. And I don't have a lot of anxiety about enemies. And, <laughs> and I've tried to live in a way where I don't have a lot of them, you know. But the, but the point is, a couple of weeks back, a few weeks back when ISIS brutally murdered those 21 Coptic Christians. I was part of the team that helped us sort of put together a prayer response for our community together. And uh, we resourced Walter Brueggemann and the Book of Common Prayer. And, uh, and, and this is what we prayed. It went like this. Can you put that up? Lord, when we witness these atrocities, when we experience, or we experience the sinking sense that the world is not safe, that our lives are not free from threat, and we wonder if assault will come to our well-ordered lives. Help us not trust the flying jets and uniformed soldiers or bombs to fix this. Lord Jesus, you taught us to pray for those who persecute us and for those who, know, who we know as enemies 
when you hung on the tree, you prayed that the Father forgive those who were murdering and mocking you. Help us not simply hate groups like ISIS and Boko Haram. Help us hear the whisper of the crucified one. Forgive them. They know not what they are doing. Help us pray for them. And we ask you for the grace of conversion for them. Then we all prayed, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. We continued. Lord Jesus, you gave Saul, that's the one who became Paul, the great persecutor of the church and murderer of Stephen, the grace of conversion. May these terrorists be converted like Saul on the road to Damascus. May these persecutors and enemies of your church regret their mistakes and make reparation for their murderous acts. And may they acknowledge you as Lord and Savior to whom be honor and glory forever. And we prayed, amen. And I remember when I was curating this prayer and when we prayed it together as a community, it deeply messed with me. I mean, I, I recognize that I did not love those who are perpetrating terror. They were my enemies and I hated them on some level. I wanted, I wanted them to pay for their atrocities and as horrible as it sounds, I wanted them to die. I wanted to see the jets fly and the bombs fall and the soldiers march. And, and um, the whole affair just felt like a slap on the face to me. And as slaps do, it stung. And the sting is where I wanted to react from. The default impulse in me is to slap back. And I hoped our government would just slap back. I'm not trying to make any kind of a political statement here. I, I'm just simply saying that as a Christian, our response should never be from slaps. It ought to be from another place. And as I prepared the prayer, I heard the disruptive voice of Christ do not slap back, turn the other cheek. Not an eye for eye or tooth for tooth, not internally. Respond from the part of you that doesn't sting, that isn't injured. Turn your face from the natural, turn the other cheek and look to the eternal. In truth, in those moments, I knew I was becoming more faithful to Revelation than I'm to love my neighbor. And it happened because of an us response. And I was no longer distorting it with my human concern. I was no longer giving place to the Satan. Because of our corporate cry, I was praying for my enemy, not cursing him. Somehow my enemy was demonstered and humanized and they began to matter. If you want to be faithful to what God is trying to speak into your life, community is not an option. You need the us. Even the pagan philosopher Aristotle, hip, hip, hooray for him. He was a pretty smart dude. But he said, if you live outside of community, you live as the Cyclops do. Remember the Cyclops? There were those big creatures that had one eye and they lived in caves kind of around each other, but you didn't visit often. Because if you got too close to a cyclops, he would eat you. And then lastly, recognize that revelation is intended to confront you.
not comfort you. Sometimes it comforts, but even in its comfort, it confronts. In order to be faithful to revelation you need that you receive, you need to realize the revelation is intended to change you, which in a way means kill you as you know you. I used to tell people as a young pastor, Jesus will give you such a great life. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Even sung that kind of thing. I remember the day it dawned on me that I thought, wait a minute, I think I'm lying. I mean, it's probably more accurate to say, I mean, Jesus wants to give you new life and a wonderful life, but he's out to destroy you first. That, that the Christian message is more about death than an enriched life, at least at the beginning. And so watch the move Jesus makes right after he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, he says. But turning and looking at his disciples in verse 33, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And he called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The start of the faith is denying yourself, not supporting yourself. It's challenging yourself, not comforting yourself. And then he uses cross language. This was not, you know, in their day, they would look up and they would see people dying in real time on crosses. Think of how disturbing that would be if you walked out of here and along the road out there, there are people literally hanging and dying in torment. How could you ever get used to that? And that's the language Jesus used. See those people on the cross, the suffering they're going through? You have to embrace that before you can have life with me. And he says, for those who want to save their life will lose it. And those that lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. This is his altar call. I think that we can claim Jesus does have a wonderful life for you that's beyond what you could ever scratch out for yourself. Yes, I believe that. But not before he messes with you. Right? Let me end with a couple of disturbing texts. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God, this is God when he speaks into your life through creation, through events, whatever. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. Penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. <laughs> We're talking about knives here. Not sweet self talk. We're talking about, here, come a little closer. <laughs> Did you ever cut up a chicken, a whole chicken? You're going to cut it up to cook it? It isn't like you're gentle and doing nice chicken self talk. You're such a pretty chicken. You're such a pretty chicken. You go. It's violent. This is the word of God. (laughs) It's butcher language. Why don't you come forward for prayer now? Here's another horrible Bible verse. Jeremiah 1.10. See, today I appoint over you. He's talking to Jeremiah. I'm sending you to minister. <laughs> and so here's your ministry. And I'm sending you to the nations and the kingdoms. And here's what you're going to do. Uproot, tear down, destroy, and overthrow. And then build and plant. Which means about two-thirds of God's ministry in our lives is destructive. 
We want to tell the Lord, Lord, I want more friends. I want more community. I just want to feel like I'm connected. Build, plant. And what God says is, okay, I need to uproot, tear down, destroy, and overthrow what you think friendship is. Because right now, you just want to be friends with people who are cool or better than you so that when you hang around them, you feel better about yourself. We just need to throw a grenade right into that. Oh God, would you, my marriage, would you build and plant it? Would you just make it more wonderful so that all my needs are met? And God said, oh yeah, but let me just sort of uproot, tear down, destroy and overthrow what you think marriage is supposed to be. And then we'll build and some plant some stuff. Right? Or God, you know, my career, I just, you promised to meet all my needs and I just want to be successful, just wildly successful. <laughs> and God goes, okay, well, let's talk about, let's, let's first uproot, tear down, destroy and overthrow what you think work is. You're not supposed to work because you're getting paid. You're supposed to work as you're doing it unto me. You shouldn't measure out how much you're getting paid with how much you dole out as work, but you should give your whole heart even when you're paid less than what you think you should be paid. And God messes with you. You walk away like a chicken out of a butcher shop, right? A little bit bloody and carrying pieces. These are not affirming words. These are not comforting words. These are not paths for self-help or steps you can take to become the best you. That's the, that's, the, that's the perversion of the American mindset to the gospel. This is disruptive, invasive, violent, sacrificial language. This is cross-language. So here's what I'm suggesting <laughs> that we see from the gospel today that revelation is intended to bring a real radical shift in vision. Give us a new way of seeing, a new way of living. And though we may try to respond appropriately and faithfully to it, our response to his voice is limited by our maturity. It's limited by our character. It's limited by our experience. And we tend to pervert and distort what he says to us. So we have to be cautious. Let's run to hear his voice, but then let's ask him to help us not distort it. Amen? Let's stand. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.